Egypt, France, Lebanon, the USA, Portugal, Greece, Pakistan, Italy, Nigeria, Bangladesh, Czechoslovakia, Sri Lanka, Venezuela, Jamaica, Uruguay, Senegal, Mexico, Thailand, South Korea. From the late 1960s, students from across the world marched the streets, occupied buildings, fought the police and armed forces, leading a revolt which transcended any boundaries and any regime or state authority. On the face of it, each protest started and ended for its own reasons, some of them even plunging their country into political and social chaos, causing mere revolutions. But each movement was never isolated. Whether they knew it or not, these students were part of what has been described by Dr. Daniel J. Mahoney, Professor of Political Science at Assumption College, Massachusetts, as a truly global phenomenon. So, how did this marvel happen? How can one seemingly isolated movement in France precipitate a storm in politics and culture across the world, with students at the heart of the charge? What was it about the 1960s that saw a surge in student activism? The truth is, there is no straightforward answer to these questions. Protests might start because of one breaking issue, but often they are eruptions of slow-burning anger felt in society at the time. Take for instance in the UK, which has recently seen wide demonstrations by university professors in defence of their current pension benefits. On the face of it, there is one problem at hand. But if we scratch below the surface, we find a plethora of answers as to why our professors felt the need to take action. So, let's go back to France 1968 and scratch below the surface. The immediate causes of the movement were explained by George Katsiaficus, Professor of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Massachusetts, the USA, in our interview regarding student activism in the mid-20th century. We look solely at 1968 uh, in France and uh, the specific precipitating incident that led to the vast uprising of uh, nearly 10 million workers and shutdown of the country beginning in May and, and following into June 1968. Interestingly enough, it was a group of male students who spent the night in a women's dormitory and uh, were chased in the morning after the police were called into crowded lecture halls where the police began beating anyone with long hair wearing blue jeans, which was the description they had been given of the men. And, you know, there was great outrage when this occurred in uh, Nanterre on the outskirts of Paris. And uh, the student governments of France, you know, France extraordinarily centralized, but so the student governments from all over France had a meeting uh, in Paris and they were all arrested. The, the, the government just arrested all these students, which of course then in, made the campuses all over the country rise up against the arrest of their leaders. The police were called, there was fighting in the Latin Quarter, there were fighting scenes in many cities, and the population 
sided with the students. The same riot police who were fighting the students had been created in 1958 to put down worker strikes. So there was great affinity between the workers and the students at the grassroots. Uh, and the, the movement spread throughout the country, as I said, to the point where uh, you know, some communities adopted their own forms of currency because you know, the French system appeared to be on the brink of collapse. And uh, the role of students in France was extraordinary in sparking this national uprising. The student movement, which followed the brutal actions of the police, plunged France into a political crisis so severe that it looked to overthrow the current Gaullist regime. In the days that followed the 3rd of May, demonstrations of up to 50,000 people took to the streets and demanded the jailed students be freed and for the police to evacuate all university buildings. From the 10th of May, the demonstrations became violent. While students erected barricades, dug out bricks from the streets to be used as weapons, and used Molotov cocktails, the police and paramilitary forces that were ordered to quell them used smoke, tear gas, rifle butts and clubs against the demonstrators. By the 13th of May, France came to a standstill in a national-wide general strike, with factory workers, media outlets, school teachers and transport workers standing firmly with the students. The political pressure was so great that Charles de Gaulle, President of the Fifth French Republic, was forced to dissolve the National Assembly and call new elections. But could all of this really be born from some young men in a university dormitory? Maybe not. Underneath the clandestine sleepovers lay brewing frustrations and tensions, namely a rapidly changing student body and a poorly designed education system which did not serve its social purpose. In the academic year 1957 to 1958, there were 175,000 students, but by 1968, this figure ballooned to 500,000. Married to an increase in access to higher education were increasing withdrawal rates and dire employment prospects post-graduation. Increasing access to education also changed the formerly very elitist university campus into a lower middle class one and the archaic French system was not able to meet the demands of its new student body, namely by ensuring post-graduation upward social mobility. University life was also a very impersonal one. The you know, centralized French education system uh, had not only archaic structures of authority, but it had an archaic curriculum. And uh, students were often uh, unknown to their professors. They, you know, they were cogs in a machine at best. So, in the student body, we see tensions from all angles. In the upper-class students who no longer had guaranteed access to powerful positions, given the widening access to higher education. In the lower middle-class students who, having struggled to enter the university system, have no guarantee of what Raymond Boudon, former sociologist and professor at Paris Sorbonne University calls social promotion and in a system that, while growing, is failing to modernise and serve the needs of its students. This systemic strain was paralleled in wider French society. More than just the result of police brutality or increasingly poor university conditions, the student movement highlighted the contradiction between improving economic conditions and industrialization, and yet increasingly poor social conditions and values that were important for deeper human satisfaction. As Susanne Berger, political scientist and professor at MIT, argues, the students in France refused to legitimate the state based solely on whatever goods it could provide. 
They instead pose serious questions about the direction of mass consumerism and archaic social structures. When we look at those events in total, this was a civilization crisis, not just a crisis of education. The you know, workers went on strike and they didn't, even when the communists controlled trade unions, negotiated 30% pay raises and vacation, you know, pay for the time of strikes and all of that. The workers rejected it. They didn't want to have to spend their lives working in factories in exchange for consumer goods. They knew in their guts that these societies had become so technologically advanced that work was an outmoded concept. All of this explains the particularities of France. But remember that groups of students took up this same fight across the world, and they certainly did not do so for the same reasons as France. This wasn't a single event in one country, in one continent, in one year. University students led the resistance across two decades, spanning the globe, and each time for their own unique reasons. So this is where we come to Kwangju, South Korea, in 1980. Kwangju is the perfect illustration of how student resistance in this era was a transnational concept, yet each fight had a unique character and starting point, and often with completely different demands and results. The background leading to the uprising in Kwangju is a difficult one, fraught with political turmoil dating back decades, so I leave it to Professor Katsia Fikas to explain the historical details and how the uprising unfolded. Well, after the 1960 movement overthrew the government of Sigmund Rhee at the cost of over 200 lives when the police opened fire, the army had sided with the movement. It, you know, a tremendous popular movement erupted and the army refused to fight it and Sigmund Rhee left for Hawaii. But within a year, a military coup d'etat was led by a General Park Chung-hee. In 1961. And for 19 years, Park Chung-hee ruled with an iron fist in South Korea until he was assassinated by his own former Korean CIA director. And once he was assassinated, I think the aspirations of the people for democracy were popularly known and widespread. But within a few months of Park's assassination, one of his protégés seized power in a new military coup d'etat. And as the spring developed, student protests emerged. The military announced if the students remain in the streets that the troops will be sent to use force against them. Only in Kwangju, in the southern part of South Korea, in southwestern South Korea, did the students go into the streets, remain in the streets in large numbers after that warning. And uh, as promised, the military sent in very hardline paratroopers, pulled them off the front lines with North Korea, uh, with U.S. approval, and they used maximum force. They used bullets, bayonets, and clubs uh, against unarmed students, even to the point of stripping women, publicly humiliating them or trying to humiliate them, stabbing them in the breasts with bayonets, killing taxi drivers who tried to stop, who stopped and tried to get the students to hospital. And as I said to you earlier, even uh, ultimately arresting the police chief and the local general be 
who protested the brutality of the paratroopers. And what's remarkable is that students initiated a popular uprising that didn't cower in the face of such brutality. The uprising lasted from the 18th to the 27th of May 1980, and much like France, it was the actions of a few students which highlighted a pressing national issue. It was born from more than a ban on political expression. This uprising was against a fascist, martial law government and a strong demand for democratisation in South Korea. But unlike France, the scenes were much bloodier. The demonstration became a war scene, with the military using helicopters, tanks, indiscriminately shooting at crowds and searching door to door for students who may have been involved. The public retaliated with haste, stealing weaponry from police stations and burning cars and buildings. The street fighting lasted for 10 days before the government finally secured the region with a military convoy. So what pulls these two seemingly different narratives together? They both involve state violence, they both involve multidimensional issues, but the biggest thing they have in common, university students in the mid 20th century. So why students and why then? I spoke to Dr. Gerard de Groot, Professor of History at the University of St. Andrews, Scotland, to find out. Student activism isn't unique to the 1960s. We've certainly seen student protests and movements before. So what was unique about the 1960s, which caused a sudden explosion of political activity from young people? Yes, I think you, you do. It, there, there's no question that student protest is a phenomenon that dates back, you know, a, a couple of centuries. I think what makes the 1960s unique is this is the baby boomer phenomenon, is the fact that these people were born into a world in which they felt that they had a certain agency. And they also had they had time on their hands. They they you know they weren't forced to go immediately into the into the workplace like previous generations might have. They had a from a very early age they were they were encouraged to feel themselves that important everywhere you get a sense that that these this is a generation that that believes in its in its own wisdom but it also in its 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 right to shape the world students will only take to the streets if they believe if they have a, an optimism that they can actually shape the future but of course, this generational feeling wouldn't have necessarily been experienced in the same way from each country to the next. In a lot of cases, we're dealing with hugely different contexts. So are there any other factors which led to its global character? Yeah, I think there's something, um, there is a, a sense in which students around the world are communicating with each other in a way that previous generations didn't. Partly that's because it is easier to communicate. It's easier to travel. You know, there were the the French protesters invited American protesters in the in the Students for a Democratic Society to come over, and they did. Uh, so there's an exchange of ideas. There's the global sort of news that that's that. I mean, it's not like anything like it is today, but there is still. A, a sense of communication and awareness of what's going on around the world. And, and I think also there is that 
I, I'm a big believer in the idea that 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 protest is fashion. Um, it's it becomes fashionable, um, and fashions are global. You know, students everywhere are wearing Levi's. They're wearing sandals. They're putting beads around their neck. Um, they're also um, protesting because that's what students are supposed to do. The generational feeling and more practical factors which led to the global spread of student activism can be summarised by Dr. Katsiafikis' theory of the Eros effect. You know, the fact is that all of this bloodshed and the uh, violence of 68 and the protests, uh, in my mind, are involved the birth of a new global culture. And uh, this new global culture that is emerging speaks across cultural, racial, national divides. What the Eros effect means to me is the awakening of human instinct need for freedom. Whether we are locked up in prisons or whether we are locked up in institutions that imprison us in structures of authority and power that we do not agree with. And it's just a way of saying young people today are much, much more intelligent than ever. And that it's a kind of intelligence uh, driven by so many different devices and, and, and histories, that the species as a whole is extremely conscious of the fact that we are the makers of planetary history. So a protest is more than a mass of people. It can symbolise a localised issue, a national one, or it can symbolise a much wider, generational urge to make a change an urge which crosses any geographical, social or political boundary. And this all sounds very romantic. However, Dr. De Groot does warn against becoming overly nostalgic about the 60s. I don't think we should get nostalgic about it, and this is what really bothers me about so much of, of this, even the historic, the, the serious his, historical uh, analysis of the 60s. This is far too uh, nostalgic. My generation thinks they really changed the world in the 1960s, but they didn't. That These are still young people. And young people, unfortunately, are susceptible to immaturity and impatience and display. Dr. Groot pointed out in our conversation together that the movements not only suffered from a naivety, but also from a lack of formal organisation, meaning they often ended as abruptly as they started. But it's up to us, as students, to learn from the past and better decide what is worth fighting for and how we do it. The examples of France and South Korea might just provide a bit of inspiration and a lesson. Who knows, if the recent American example is anything to go by, we may see a generational revolt of our own. Dr. De Groot did leave our conversation with a message of hope for the future, so I'll leave you with that. I think what is so wonderful about young people is, is that they believe that, that they can change the world. And that's great, that's, that's fantastic, because the world doesn't belong to me, it belongs to you. Um, it, it's going to be your world, and so of course you're going to want to change it. Uh, and so you should.